Okay, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Praise the Lord. At this rate, it'll be 10 years getting through the book of Genesis. But uh, no, it'll speed up as we get moving. Um, Real quick, if you did not get a handout on the way in, you can put your hand up and, and get a hard copy of the, the notes for the message. You can get the digital links for the message on our, on our social links. So the Facebook page, YouTube, mbtkc.org, you can get the digital. Hey, brother, how are you doing? Okay, brothers and sisters, I didn't even know this. We've got a celebrity in the house. Um, Chris Sidos, can you stand up? Just pop off your mask so everybody can see you. This is Pastor Chris Sidos from India, hanging with us. I didn't know he was gonna be here this morning, man. God is good to us. Okay. Um, just uh, before we pray and get into Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, um, just real quick, you know, a lot of times people say, man, they've got, the, they've got the women's study. We've got the Titus chapter 2, the blueprint for the women. What's for the guys? And, and there's a lot for the guys at MBT. Um, but I really appreciate Pastor Morgan, uh, Chris Miller, Jeff Uh, No, it would be Larry Smith, you know, just the leadership for the men's study. And uh, Larry's going to be spearheading this round, and and I don't know if you were paying attention to the topics, to the titles, but this is something that everybody will want to get. Men, we want to know our place, our position, we want to know God's will over our life, and so you think about one Wednesday a month, and and uh, that's, a, that's a very reasonable investment. So be praying about how you're going to participate in that. Let's ask the Lord to help us receive his word this morning. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to study uh, really some things that, that you really got to, I mean, you got to compare Scripture with Scripture if, if we're going to see what we need to see today. And, and Lord, we just recognize that it's easy for God's people to be a little bit lazy in the Word. And so, Lord, I'm praying that today would provoke people to be students, uh, to make full proof, Lord, to, 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 to labor in Your Word. Uh, God, it's, it's critical that we know Your will, and, and that's found not in how we feel. It's not found in our thoughts or our imagination. It's rooted in Your Word. And so, God, open up Your Word. Help us to behold how You want to relate with us. I'm, I'm so grateful for Genesis because... We don't just see the beginnings, but we actually see the beginnings of what it means to be in right relationship with you. Um, we read your word and we just get insight into the genius. Uh, genius is a weak word to describe your mind, and yet uh, we'll try. <laughs> God, thank you. Lord, thank you for Christodos. Uh, Lord, I, I know uh, this has been a, a long, hard week for him. He has translated hours of instruction and teaching for pastors in India. And Lord, I thank you for Pastor Dan and, and Pastor Chris and just all of the, the, the Pastor Brian Hedges, the work that they do to coordinate that, and all of the men that, that, that invested this week to get doctrine, good doctrine to India. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd bless that effort. Bless, bless Christodos. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen his body. Uh, Lord, refresh him, and, and uh, Lord, when he comes back to India, uh, let it be with rejoicing and much fruit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in Genesis chapter 1. Last week, we looked at verse 1. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And what we saw last week is that everything inside of our, you know, in terms of our time-space continuum, everything has a cause. And so we saw God as the first cause. He is the beginning. In the beginning, God did everything. He created the heaven and the earth. And so we saw the reality. The fact that we have something rather than nothing is proof for the existence of a first cause. And then you look at what he did, the intricacy, the magnitude, the detail. All of it shows his brilliance. His brilliance is shown in the not just in the magnitude, but in the infinite complexity, the intelligent design The universe is perfectly set up so as to enable life to exist. The odds of that happening by chance are, I mean, the odds against that happening by chance are overwhelming. There is no way 
the fact that you and I can live on planet Earth and live and move and have our being, there is no way that happened by accident. There is a creator God, and you cannot miss that. There's no way around that. Only a fool can miss that, and yet last week we saw God is the first cause. He's massive. He's infinite. But, but we also saw that he's good. We'll see this as we go through Genesis chapter 1. God will speak, it will become, and then God will say about it, it is good. Right? God saw, and so he says it was good. Yet, Psalms 14 tells us our first point for study. There is a problem. And the problem is foolish denial of God. And, and we, we looked at this last week. Psalms 14 verse 1 says, The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Why does he do that? Well, Psalms 14, verse 1 gives you the answer to that. It's because they're corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. They know there is a God, but to be submitted to Him means we can't just do what we want the way that we want. I want to perpetrate some corruptible works, so I'm just going to say in my mind, there is no God. This is foolish. Romans said the same thing. We looked at this last week, Romans chapter 1. Let's look at it again because this sets us up for what we need to see in Genesis 1 verse 2. Romans 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So here is a creator God. His revelation is made known. People see it. They know what is truth, but the Bible says they hold that truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19 says, because that which may, be known, which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of Him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." And here it is again, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. So the fact of God, and the fact of God's expectation is revealed in, in creation, but knowing, right, that truth, they hold it in unrighteousness, and even though they know God, they refuse to submit to Him. They refuse to glorify Him as God, verse 21, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so they said, well, there's no God. Now, I know the truth. Every atheist in their heart of hearts knows the truth. Now, there may be some people who are genuinely ignorant, and they've never, they've never taken the time to properly, properly consider. Uh, but what a shame that is. You're living and moving and having your being, and you never stop to ask how did we get here? I mean, that is the slippery slope to believing on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's exactly what that is. And so I'll, I'll hold out. There's some people that just never stop. They're just that ignorant. But, but, oh my goodness, if you've stopped to think about it even for a second, all this something required, right, a very great cause. They knew God. They refused to glorify Him as God. They became vain in their imaginations. The foolish heart is darkened. And professing themselves, verse 22, to be wise, they became fools. There is no God. They changed the glory, verse 23, of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So as a result of their rejection of God, verse 24 says, wherefore, here's the judgment of God, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. It's because they're corrupt. God gives them over to corruption. And here it is again, verse 25. It just echoes what we saw in verse 18. They hold the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 25 says, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So anybody that ends up dying in rebellion against God, anybody that goes to hell, they go knowing. And it's heartbreaking because God is not willing that any would perish. God's not willing that any would be separated him from, from, from Him eternally in hell. Uh, God's willing that all would be saved. Now, our sin deserves the wrath of God. God is a righteous God. He's a holy God. He's a just God. And so if we have to pay the penalty for our sin against a holy, righteous, infinite God 
that will take eternity separated from him. And that place is a place that Satan and his angels are consigned to. It's called hell. It was made for the devil and his angels. It was never God's plan for man to spend eternity there. But if you'll follow Satan in rebellion against God, well, then you'll share in his eternal destiny. That's how this thing works. Well, God's so desperate that nobody goes there that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves humanity. He gave his life so that we could believe on him and receive it. Anybody that goes to hell, they go knowing. They have the truth, but they hold it in unrighteousness, and they, ch- and they rebel against God. And so here's what we need to see this week as we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And this is the key. I'm, I'm praying that today we will understand the spirit behind this rebellion against God. Spirit is your next blank. Here's how the spirit of rebellion works. Here's how it leads the thought process. And you see it in action in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verses 3 and 4. It's describing the person of the Antichrist himself, and he does exactly what we just saw in Romans chapter 1. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of Christ, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. That's another title or another name for the Antichrist. He's called the man of sin, the Antichrist, that wicked. Those are just some of the names of this man. Here's another one, the son of perdition. And then look at how he thinks. Look at how this works in his life. What does the Antichrist do? Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see what he does? The spirit of Antichrist leads this man to elevate the creature above the creator. He knows the truth. The Antichrist knows the truth, but he holds it in unrighteousness, and he turns the truth of God into a lie, and instead of honoring God, instead of glorifying him, instead of falling down and worshiping him as king of kings and lord of lords, he says, no, no, not the living God, but self. I will stand in the place of God as God, showing myself that I am God. This is the function of the spirit of Antichrist, and it's described for us in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Here's how you know the spirit of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, hereby you know, know ye the spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. God is revealed. God became a man. God is revealed. They see it. They receive it. Well, this is the function of the Holy Ghost, God's Holy Spirit, leading men to reckon God rightly. But now look at verse 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, which is truth, Jesus is come in the flesh. God did become a man to buy us out of our sin problem before God by taking our sin to the cross of Calvary, being reckoned our sin on the cross of Calvary, suffering God's wrath over our sin on the cross of Calvary. He died so that we can live. So everyone that does not confess that Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Christ did come in the flesh. That's the truth. So what are you doing? You're holding it in unrighteousness. Christ has not come in the flesh. That's what the spirit of Antichrist says. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. So what does it do? It stands in the place of God as God. Oh, no, no, Christ come in the flesh. I'm not going to seize upon that. Instead, I'm going to deny that, and I'm going to stand in the place of God as God. I'm going to show myself that I am God. That's what the Antichrist does in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Is everybody with me so far? Uh, Turn to your neighbor and tell them, wake up, pay attention, take notes. Pastor's dropping some heavy stuff this morning, and if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss it. So why does he do this? He knows the spirit of Antichrist, knows what's true, but won't submit to what's true. Well, here it is, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ is come in the flesh, and as a result, he becomes servant of all mankind takes the sin of all humanity as the second Adam takes the sin of all of us in the first Adam to the cross of Calvary. 
He becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Verse 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Can I just tell you something? There is no name like the name of Jesus. That is the greatest, that is the highest, that is the most powerful, that is the most magnificent, magnificent name that will ever be. It is a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. I see the truth. Christ has come in the flesh. And if I'm going to hold that truth in righteousness, I'm going to submit my life to it. I'm going to seize hold of that. I'm going to submit my life. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The spirit of the Antichrist says, no, 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 that's not true. I say in my heart there is no God. I'm God. I'm going to elevate the creature above the creator. Instead of, in, instead of seeing the truth and submitting the truth and confessing Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, no, 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 I'm going to stand in the place of God and show myself that I'm God. I'm going to worship me, not Jesus. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Well, I got news for you. It doesn't matter if you hold the truth. In, it does matter, but just hear me out. It doesn't matter if you hold the truth in righteousness or unrighteousness. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord. Nothing changes that. So point number two, let's look at the reality. Jesus is Lord. And you see this illustrated beautifully in Isaiah chapter 9. You say, I thought we were supposed to be looking at Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 this morning. We're going to get there. But you need to understand why. We're going to see what we're going to see, and this is the setup. This is it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, that's describing the first coming, the first advent. Right? This is the birth of Christ. Jesus came the first time, though as the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. Christ came to be our sacrifice for sin. First advent. And then look at that colon in your King James Bible. Okay, in that colon, you can actually cram into that 2,000 years of church history. Because what follows that colon is the second advent. Okay? See, this is a place where you're going to rightly divide the word of truth. Whenever Isaiah describes Christ's coming, he shows both advents together. And God just like gives you a little clue. Let's stick that colon in there so that people can understand Christ coming to man. It's in two phases. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, Christ came the first time and presented himself as king, as Messiah. But God's chosen people rejected their Messiah. The, you know, they did, we did it too. They couldn't do it without Rome. So we as humanity colluded together and we butchered our creator at Calvary. So the government was offered, but didn't take it upon his shoulder in the first coming, but I got news for you. In the first coming, yes, he's the lamb of God, but in the second coming, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's going to come roaring, and the roar is so sharp. It's a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, and it lays out his enemies. Of the, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Let me tell you about the name of Jesus. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Underline that phrase in your Bible. The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, here you are this morning, you're reading Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, and you are either with that or you hate that. You're either with the Lordship of Christ, and in your heart, in your mind, in your life, you bow your knee and you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my Lord and Savior. He's the King of kings, and He's the Lord of lords, and it will be that way for eternity. You're either there or you're not. You're either in with the government, the kingship of Christ over your life, or you're rebelling against Jesus. Now, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is king. He will rule and reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. 
Where's my choir? Hallelujah, hallelujah, and he shall reign. Okay, next time they play Handel's Messiah, that, you want to check, like you get to the end of that thing and your, your heart's like, it's like aliens, you know. Jesus is Lord, you know. I mean, you just can't, I mean, just burst your heart, man. It's awesome. Jesus is king. You're either with that or you're in a rebellion against that. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God? Where you recognize the exceeding sinfulness of your sin and you said, oh God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who was willing to take my wickedness to the cross of Calvary and suffer your wrath in my place. Thank you that the, I mean, for me, I was 12 years old, you know, when I did this. That he'd love a little hillbilly 12-year-old nobody and to become my sin, die in my place. Oh God, I don't want my life. Take it. I want your life. Come into my heart and my life. Forgive me. I'm calling on the Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be mine. I was seizing it. I was clinging to the light of the gospel. Have you ever done that? Have you ever come to the place in, where in repentance of your sin, the sin that separates you from God, you proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord, is your Savior? Are you tr- is he your sin bearer? Are you trusting on him? Are you submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you Lord? Not Christ, right? Not his lordship over my life. I want to do what I want to do, the way I want to do it, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Standing in the place of God as God, I'm in charge. Okay, where did all of this start? Point number three. This is where we're going to drill down. Let's look at Satan's rebellion. And where it all goes south is there was a day in time past, there was a day, there was a time when he stood, he decided he's going to stand in the place of God as God and show himself that he is God. He is the author. He's the source of this spirit of Antichrist. Jesus is Lord, but, Jesus, but Satan decided he wasn't down with that because rebels do what rebels do. So look at Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 through 17. We see how this all went down. First of all, how it went down in his heart. Isaiah 14 verse 12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Lucifer is Satan's original name. It means light bearer. Keep that in mind. Lucifer means light bearer. How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Why is he cut down? Well, verse 13 tells you, For thou hast said in thine heart, and what we're going to see now are five ways that Satan vaunts, he rebels. Satan vaunts his will over against God's will. He says in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. Why would he, well, because that's my rightful place. Notice it's ascend into heaven. So he's somewhere, he's got a dominion, but it's not enough for him. He wants more. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God is a reference for the celestial host the angelic host. You'll see them referred to that way as the stars of God. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 would be a great place to see that. My rule will be over the celestial host. Well, whose rule is over the celestial host? What's Jehovah? But that should be my rule. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Here it is in a nutshell. I will be like the most high. So what Satan does literally here in his heart, he says, you know what? Forget God. I should have that throne. I should have that place of preeminence and rule. He's standing in the place of God as God, showing himself he's the one. Does everybody see that in Isaiah 14? This is the spirit of Antichrist on display. God says, no, (laughs) nope, it's not going to work out. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Hell was created for Satan and those angels who followed him in rebellion. And man can choose to as well. Verse 16, they that 
see thee, shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, is this the man? Notice he's called a man. Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness? Made the world as a wilderness. You ought to just underline that in your Bible and put a cross-reference. Jeremiah chapter 4. We'll get there in a minute. Made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of his prisoners. You get more information, more detail about this rebellion in Ezekiel chapter 28 where God, in addressing the king of Tyrus, okay, he's addressing, he's pronouncing judgment on the king of Tyrus and he doesn't even talk to him. He talks to the Lucifer behind him, the Satan behind him that's empowering him. In Ezekiel 28 verse 11, moreover the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, thus saith the Lord God. And then he talks about Lucifer for the rest of the passage. Watch this. Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Is it the king of Tyrus that's on the cover of GQ and Vogue and those are the only fashion names I know. <laughs> Whatever it was back then. Or is it Lucifer? Who's the good-looking one? Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, this is the king of Tyrus. <laughs> but we're talking about somebody living in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the, 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 jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. Uh, your covering, your exterior is made up of all these precious stones. We're not talking about the king of Tyrus, are we? We're talking about the person of Lucifer himself. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. So this being, Lucifer, he is a musical instrument. Why? Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Okay, so... The cherubim, that is a celestial type of angelic being, and they are, I mean, they're like the hulks of the angel world, okay? These are, these are the, the, the top-tier celestial beings. And if you see in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, you'll see four cherubim surrounding the throne of God, and their message is holy, 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 okay? You'll see those four cherubim in Revelation chapter 4. Well, it's 4 now. It used to be 5, okay? Now it's 4, but it used to be 5 because Lucifer is a cherub, and he's covering. He's covering the throne of God. So the light of God, here's the picture. The light of God, God is light. Our God is a consuming fire. The light of God would reflect off of Lucifer, the light bearer. You see that? It's his job in creation to bear the light of God out into creation, and he's made a musical instrument, okay? Nobody knows music and nobody knows worship like Lucifer. So here he is, the anointed cherub covering the throne, the glory of God. This is, he surround, God is surrounded by cherubim and he's covered and the light of God is blasting out through this thing. And these cherubim are leading the celestial host in worship. And man, they've got the music, holy, 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 holy. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, okay, so this is why worship leaders get in trouble all the time, is they're leading worship to God, but everyone in the congregation, they're not looking at God, they're looking at the worship leader. Do you see that? And so here it is, after a few thousand years, maybe it's a hundred thousand years of just just being at the center of the worship of God. We don't know how long this happened, Satan said, man, I'm enjoying this worship. And instead of it being all about God, overnight it's all about him. The spirit of Antichrist takes over, and now he's standing in the place of God as God showing himself. He is God. And you'll see this. Worship leaders leading. We're, I'm so grateful for our worship leaders. They, humble, they keep themselves small. They humble themselves. They recognize this particular problem and plague on worship leaders. But when you hear about problems in the church, half the time it's worship leaders taking something that doesn't belong to them for themselves, standing in the place of God saying, I deserve this. It's all about me. And that's what Lucifer did. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect. Thou wast perfect 
in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee, till we discovered the spirit of Antichrist motivating you. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. That's not your light. You were just reflecting mine. You thought it was all about you, but you're wrong. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore, I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee. I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and, shalt never, and never shalt thou be any more. Okay, so we know that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, we know that Satan, Lucifer, has fallen, and we see him manifest as a lying, rebellious serpent, don't we? Everybody knows the story of Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 says, now the serpent, this is how Lucifer is manifest here, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, if God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. Here it is. Here's the spirit of Antichrist. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. God knows the day you get a hold of that fruit. Why do you think, why do you think I put everything on the menu, but then he's holding out on the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you see how stingy God is being? When the reality is, is do you see how generous God is being? Everything's on the menu, but one tree? There's just one point of submission to the Lord? I mean, how, it, it, does, it just doesn't get any easier to follow God than Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse, verse 1, right? The day that you eat thereof, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You can stand in the place of God as God and show yourself that you're the man. You're the woman, Eve. Come on. So when the woman saw it was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. A tree to be desired to make one wise. I can, I can stand in the place of God as God. I can be as God, knowing good and evil. Desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew good and evil. As gods, they knew good and evil. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They have to hide. They have to cover their sin. Yeah, your eyes will be open. You'll know good and evil. But the part of the story that, got, that Satan left out was the judgment of sin. He didn't, Satan never leads with that, does he? They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Okay? In Him was life and this light, uh, this, uh, in, uh, in him was light and this light was the life of men, the, 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 the light of God's word, the person of Christ. He's walking and talking in the garden. What are they doing? Because their deeds are evil, they're hiding. They hid themselves from the voice of the Lord God, from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Okay, so there it is. We know, let's go ahead and bring up the uh, whiteboard and uh, all God's people know to pray right now. This has been an ongoing issue, finding some app. So we've, we finally consigned the app that we've been trying to use over the last three or four years to the pits of hell. May it never rise again. We're trying another whiteboard app, and oh Lord, bless this time. <laughs> okay, so we know that by, whoops, we know that by Genesis chapter 3, okay, are, you're not, are you connected to it? You are? Oh, uh, it says I need to sign, somehow I signed out. 
Okay, I'm going to try this again. There, okay, we're back. Praise the Lord. Okay, so we know by Genesis chapter 3 that Satan has fallen. Now, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So we know it's not at the creation of all things, right? Everything's cool in Genesis 1.1. And we don't see between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 3.1, you don't actually see one single verse that describes the fall of Satan. As a matter of fact, in, in chapter 1 and verses 3 through 31, when you get to the end of the creation week, you don't see anything about Satan's fall there. You don't see it in the review of chapter 2. Uh, it's just by Genesis 3.1, you see Lucifer as a serpent leading mankind into judgment and damnation before the Lord. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the beginning, verse 1, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2 says, and the earth was without form and void. So far, so good. This is, uh, I couldn't find, I couldn't go to Google and Google uh, the, the formless and void earth. Nobody took pictures. They didn't save them to the internet. So I made my own. And it's just a circle with a bunch of squiggly lines. But, you know, I think that represents. Okay, so this is, we're going to call this the chaotic earth. So Genesis 1 verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so here we go. Where do we put Satan's fall between creation and deception? Between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 3 verse 1. Well, here's the thing. When you study the Bible, okay, and you study it the way it tells you to study it by running the cross-references, you say, well, where does the Bible say that? Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 9 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. It tells you to compare the spiritual things, and the context is God's Word. The spiritual things of God's Word, right? Spiritual things with spiritual. You're to compare Scripture with Scripture. That's how the Bible tells you to study the Word of God. And what you find out is that God said in His Word that He did not create the earth the way that we see it described in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. So as you study your Bible and you compare Scripture with Scripture, when you get to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, God said, I didn't do it that way. What you see in Genesis 1, verse 2, that's not what I did. In Genesis 1, verse 2, it says the earth was created without form and void. The Hebrew phrase there is the earth was tohu vabohu. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Okay, look at Isaiah 45, verse 18. God says, that's not how I started it. That's not how I created it. Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it, the earth, not tohu. And I certainly didn't make it void. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Okay. What in the world? But that's what the Bible says in Genesis 1 verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. God said, I, no, that's not how I created it. I did not create it in vain, tohu, and I certainly did not create it empty. I created it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. So why? Why is he pointing this out? Why is he saying, why is he saying that whenever you look at Genesis 1 verse 2, that's not how I created the earth. Well, because Satan fell. And this is the case that I want to make, is that we'll place the fall of Satan between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2. Because some, at some point in time past, some point between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 3 1, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 happened. At some point between those two verses, Satan got full of himself and wanted for, for himself what belongs to God alone. And if you do that, if you'll place Satan's fall between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2, that makes all of your cross-references come out clean. 
which is the way you're supposed to study your Bible. Look at Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4. Look at the result of what happened in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when Satan rebelled against God. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 23 says, And I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. Okay, if you're going to study the Bible by comparing Scripture with Scripture, Jeremiah chapter 4 is demanding that you check out Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, because that's exactly what it's describing. Does everybody see that? So look at Jeremiah chapter 4 again. I beheld the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Do you see that in Jeremiah 4? So what happened? Well, keep reading. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled. You remember Isaiah chapter 14? Satan's rebellion caused the earth to tremble, to be moved. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man. This is, there's no Adam here. And all the birds of the heavens were fled. Whenever you see that phrase, birds or the fowl of heaven, the birds of heaven, picture for you spiritual entities, right? Spiritual entities, typically, they're fallen, but there are notable exceptions. For example, I saw the Spirit of God, right? I saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. So there are notable exceptions, but typically, when you see the fowl, the birds of heaven, it's describing those celestial beings that are in rebellion against God. The birds of the heavens were fled, and I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place, that would be a reference to the Garden of Eden, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by His fierce anger. Well, what's He angry about? I want to submit to you, He's angry about Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. He's angry about the spirit of Antichrist motivating, you know, Lucifer to deny Christ and vaunt self. It's the anger of the Lord, His fierce anger. For thus hath the Lord said, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. For in this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, and will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. God brings this up to the nation of Israel when He's talking about how they're going to get their tail spanked over their rebellion against God over there standing in the place of God as God, doing what they want, even though they know very clearly what God said and expects over their life. So I'm going to deal with you, but I'm not going to make a full end. But it's going to be bad. <laughs> it's going to be Genesis 1-2 bad. That's how bad it's going to be. But I won't make a full end. It's going to look like utter destruction. That's how bad it's going to look but I won't make a full end. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Let's go ahead and bring the whiteboard back up again. God doesn't make a full end. I mean, immediately you see the Spirit of God moving on the face of the waters. And by the time you get to Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 1, you know, after God's created man, male and female, He creates them. And what does he do? He commissions them. He tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and what? Replenish the earth. Okay, when you replenish something, that means you're plentishing something that was plentished before. Did that make sense? It was, it was plentished, but now I have to replenish it. Well, plentish just replenish. Replenish, that just means to fill. Yeah, but it also means to fill again. That's what it means. This thing that was filled needs to be refilled. What was it filled with before? What was full of life that was worshiping God? But there was a Nimrod in the ranks, and he got full of himself, and he said five ways in his heart how he's going to stand in the place of God as God and show himself that he's God, and I had to put an end to that. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep, but he didn't make a full end. The Spirit of God is moving on the face of the waters. What you're going to see in Genesis chapter 1 is a, is a literal six-day creation week. But what I don't know, I don't know how to tell you, is the amount of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. I don't know that information. But from Genesis chapter, two, uh, chapter 1 verse 2 all the way through the rest of your Bible, that was this year 
exactly according to biblical chronology, all of what we're going to see happened exactly 6,000 years ago. Okay, anyway, amazing. So look at the whiteboard. Now if we fill in the cross-references, okay, if we place Satan's fall, let me pick a color. I did green in the uh, first service. I'm going to do blue in this one. Okay, so if you put Satan's fall somewhere right here, so this would be Isaiah 14, whoops, a little dyslexic there, Ezekiel 28, if you put that right there, okay, so Lucifer gets full of himself between 1-1 and 1-2, then what you're going to see is the response of God, what we just saw in Jeremiah chapter 4. Is this making sense? But it's not a full end. What we're going to see is in the rest of this chapter, God restore. Yes, it's the creation account, but it's also a restoration account. And we're not putting Satan's fall there and saying we don't know chronologically what this was. We're not saying that because we're trying to make room for theistic evolution, okay? Uh, No, everything that you see, all of the life that is, that was generated by the voice, by the word of God 6,000 years ago. Beyond Satan's fall, though, I can't tell you time-wise when God got the whole ball of wax going, and I can't find it in the Bible. Uh, It just was. Does that make sense? But if I'll put Satan's fall right there, now all my cross-references line up, and and, and from Genesis 1 verse 2 forward, we're right in agreement with the Creation Research Institute. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ken Ham. I'm with him all the way, right? We're not making room for theistic evolution at all. We're just figuring out how to make all of our cross-references reconcile, how they all line up. And if you'll put Satan's fall there, everything falls into place. Is everybody with me so far? Is this at least making sense? Now, if you, want, if you don't want to get with that, I'm not going to fight with you, but I'm at total peace. Whenever I run the, whenever I compare Scripture with Scripture, all of my cross-references line up, and I know where to put the fall of Satan between 1 verse 1 and 3 verse 1. Does that make sense? Is everybody with me? Is this making sense? Okay, so... Now, what do we have? Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Okay, now if you want to get the lowdown on what's really happening here, you get that described for you in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Again, you're not going to understand everything that's going in just one pl- everything that's going on from ju- the perspective of just one place in scripture. We have to compare scripture with scripture. Amen. So if you want to know why God's dividing light from dark and giving them formal names, calling the light day and the darkness night, like they're people, like they're entities, we'll read John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Which then forces you. The Bible is now demanding that you compare John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 with Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's what we're seeing here in the first three verses of John's gospel. Now look at verse 4. In him, in Jesus... And you know it's Jesus because of verse 14. They clearly identify the word of God. It's Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the what? Light of men. Now watch this now. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That word comprehended, you say, I can comprehend two plus two is four. Okay, that's an accurate way to use that word. You, under, you comprehend how simple math works. Praise the Lord. We're, that's, a, that's a common meeting place. But this is a bigger word than that. Comprehend. Light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. This name means to apprehend, to attain, to obtain, to find. It means to lay hold of, to seize with eagerness, suddenness. I see something. I understand something. I realize something, 
And I don't leave it, I claim it. That's what comprehend means. This is why we use it to describe knowledge. Two plus two equals four. That principle of taking two things and seeing their sum, is that yours? Do you understand that? Have you comprehended that? Have you seized that understanding for yourself? And that's what we're doing. You're an educator. That's what we're doing uh, in our elementary levels, right? Well, the light's shining in the darkness, but the darkness won't come to the light. It won't seize it. It won't take it for itself. The darkness comprehended it, not. So the question on the floor as we close is this. Have you comprehended the light of Christ? The light of Christ is shining in the darkness, and it's completely separate from the night. Those battle lines have already been drawn. Good versus evil, right? Christ's kingdom versus Satan's kingdom. The two are separate, and they shall never come together. They shall never be reconciled. The light is shining. Have you seized it? Have you laid hold of it with eagerness, with suddenness? Have you claimed it in your own life? Notice that God calls the light day. Why does he call the light day? Well, that's to point you to Christ. Christ is your next blank. Because in Malachi chapter 4, one of the names of Jesus is Son of Righteousness. But it's spelled on purpose S-U-N. Like the ball of fire in the center of our solar system. That's his name, the S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness. Well, why is that? Well, because the sun always rises in the east. East is your next blank. Well, so will the S-O-N, <laughs> the Son of God, the S-U-N of righteousness. He rises in the east. Uh, study, study Isaiah chapter 30, or 63, verse 1. Um, here, let me just give you a, a, a simple layout for the second coming of Christ. You want to know the path of the second advent, how the day star arises, how the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings in the second coming of Christ. It starts in Mount Sinai, and you get that from Deuteronomy 33 verses 1 through 3. Are these, are these cross-references in your notes? Did I put that in there? No, you want to write this down, man. This is, this is gold. He starts, when Christ comes back, he starts at Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 33 verses 1 through 3, then he comes up through Edom right? South of Israel, Isaiah 63, verse 1. He comes up from Basra, from Edom, up to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just east of the Temple Mount, and when his foot lands there, it will cleave, <laughs> okay? So then from the Mount of Olives, then he comes from the east through the eastern gate, which by the way today is walled up when the Muslim world heard the prophecy that Christ was going to come through the eastern gate. One of the, one of the, he's a very famous ruler, says, well, we'll see about that. And he walled it up, and it's walled up to this day. Can I just tell you, when Jesus comes knocking, there is no denying. He will come through that eastern gate. The sun of righteousness rises from the east. Okay, that's why he's called the sun of righteousness. The sun, we're going to find out in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, we're going to find out that the sun rules the day. Rules the day. That's your next blank. Well, so also the Son of God. The Son of God rules the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, rather. Jesus will rule in the day of the Lord. Why? Because He's the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. This is called the thousand-year reign. You read about that in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 through 7. Why is he depicted as daylight? Why is he called the sun? Well, because Jesus is the light of men. John chapter 1, verse 4. In Christ, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light, brothers and sisters, is shining in the darkness. The question is, yeah, Satan's already rebelled. The darkness comprehended it not. What about you? Do you comprehend do you, comprehend. Do you comprehend the light of Christ? Do you see the life of God in Jesus Christ? Is that light to you? Have you comprehended that? Have you seized that? Have you claimed that for your own? Or will you come to the light of Jesus and reject it with Satan? This is one of the scariest things I can 
describe or contemplate. It's horrible. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 14. This is a very real danger. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You guys know the story behind that verse. Israel was against God in the wilderness. They're murmuring, they're complaining. God's disciplining them, and, and instead of keeping the snakes out of the camp, he's like, eh, you know, they're so smart, they know everything. They can deal with you. And people are dying, okay? And they cry out, they're pleading for some mercy. And so God tells Moses what to do. Fashion a brazen serpent, a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole. And everybody that's bit, they're, gonna die, they're dying. If they'll just look to that brazen serpent, if they'll just have the faith and lift up their eyes to that, they'll be healed. Uh, they'll live. And so the picture there is, is Christ was made our sin, right? When Christ was lifted up, he was lifted up on that tree on the cross of Calvary, and God reckoned him, right? He, in him, was no sin, but he took our sin. He took your wickedness before God and mine, and God reckoned him to be that sin when he suffered God's wrath in our place for us. So just as Jesus or just as the brazen serpent was lifted up, so also the Son of Man is lifted up. Now watch this. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now remember, the light is shining, and that, that light, what is it? Well, it's the life of Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because God's not willing that any would perish. Verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth not on him is not condemned. Or he, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. He that refuses to comprehend the light. You're not laying hold of it. You're not seizing it. You're not claiming that light, the light of Christ, as God's solution for your separation from him. So you don't come to the light because you're condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, but God divides the light from the darkness. He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, corruptible, right? Their works are corruption, corruptible. So they don't come to the light. Instead, they hold the truth in unrighteousness. And instead of worshiping and glorifying the Creator, no, they elevate the creature and they stand in the place of God as God, showing themselves they are God. I don't want the light of God in my life. I want to stay in darkness and be my own man, my own woman, do what I want the way I want it. It's on my terms. I did it my way. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. That's how salvation works. It's repentance toward sin and faith toward God. At some point, you come to the place where you say, I recognize the exceeding sinfulness of my sin. My wickedness and rebellion before God has separated me from him for eternity. But I also believe the gospel, the light shining, and I lay hold on it. I'm comprehending it. God loved me. The creator came and took my place and suffered God's wrath in my stead. He died that I might have eternal life. So what am I doing? God I'm repenting of my sin. I don't want that life in sin separate from you anymore. I'm turning from that and I'm turning to you. Repentance toward sin, faith toward God. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, made manifest, that they're wrought in God. 
And that's the question as we close. Satan knew the truth. He held it in unrighteousness. And the spirit of Antichrist was born. He stood in the place of God as God, showing himself that he is God. He elevated the creature above the creator. Are you with Satan in rebellion or have you come to the light? The light is separate from the dark. The light, they have two different names. They're two different kingdoms. <laughs> Which one are you in? You know, for a lot of, the, the, the people that I worry about the most aren't the people that come out of the world and into the church and they profess Christ. They get it. They get the exceeding sinfulness of sin. They understand what the kingdom of darkness is really like. But it's for the people that think they're good or the kids that grow up in church and, and they wanted to go to heaven and so they prayed a prayer so that they could go to heaven and never realized they needed a sin bearer. You show me anybody that is an adult. They grew up in church, but as an adult, I'm a pretty good person, so I can despise everybody else. <sighs> Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It terrifies me to think of kids that grow up in church and because they pray to prayer, they think they're right with God. Somehow God owes them eternity. And they've never repented of their sin and called out for the saving grace of God because they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, when you see that thing for what it is, you comprehend it. You lay hold on it and you seize it and you never let it go. Man, for the rest of your life, you know who I am? I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. All of a sudden, your capacity to deal with people goes way through the roof. You know what they are? They're just another sinner, man. That's, except by the grace of God, right? There go I, you know? Are you with the light? I'm telling you, Jesus is Lord, and you're either with that or you're rebelling against that. Can we all bow our heads? Nobody moving around. Man, I want everybody to bow their head. Close your eyes. Please examine your heart. Uh, the only people that should be moving right now are the worship leaders and uh, anybody that's coming to, to help with counseling after service. Is there anyone in this room that would say, you know, as I examine my heart and my life, I don't know that I've ever trusted on the light. I don't know that I've ever come to the place where I'm, I've believed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor, I don't know that I'm born again. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Would you pray for me? I want, I want God to work in my heart. I want to know that I've got a right relationship with God because my faith, right, I'm believing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there anybody like that? Pastor, please pray for me. I'm not sure that I'm in the light. Is there anyone? Pastor, please pray for me. I don't know that God is my father. I don't know that I'll spend eternity in heaven. I'm only going to wait a moment. Is there anybody like that? Pastor, please pray for me. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, would you please pray for me? I know I'm saved, but I'm living like I'm not in the light. <laughs> I'm living like I'm elevating my life above that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, please pray for me. I need to repent of that. I need to dedicate my life to Christ. Would you pray for me? Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Please pray for me. I need to, I need to submit my life to the light of God. Is there anybody else? Okay. Okay, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to worship. And if you have a question, if there's something you didn't understand in the message today, maybe there's something going on in your life that you want prayer or counsel over, um, however God's dealing with your heart, we want to help. Okay? So the invitation is come forward and we'll pray with you. If you're a man, one of our men will We'll pair up with you. If you're a lady, one of our ladies will pair up with you. And we'll just get the Bible open and see what God has to say about our lives. All right, Father, uh, you see our condition. You see where we're at. And Lord, I just ask in Jesus' name that God, you'd have your way with every life, every soul. You're God. Lord, I pray that the, the light of Christ would be such that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would not hold the truth, the light, of truth and unrighteousness, but that God, we'd humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Jesus is Lord. He's the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. The name of Jesus is above every name. Lord, 
we're asking that every believer at MBT would live like he's Lord. <laughs> uh, thank you that he's Savior. But Lord, what a privilege to submit our lives to Christ. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know this is a reason why some people don't come to Christ because that means they'll submit their life to him and they're, they're, not, they're not done elevating the creature above the creator. And so God, I pray that you'd have mercy and that Lord, you'd bring every soul. Lord, bring us to the end of ourselves and to the place where we comprehend, where we lay hold on Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen.